Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show podcast where we explore the walk of life. This is your host, Walker Near. As always, the music for today's show is provided by Misha Zarin, so thank you so much to Misha. This week we are joined by former stand-up comedian and current podcaster Ted Moss of the podcast Ted Talks Too Much. Ted is a hilarious guy with a breadth of experiences, including, but not limited to, owning a business, doing stand-up comedy, helping coach his daughter to be a nationally ranked collegiate golfer, and writing a book. We dive into thoughts on comedy, some insight into Flint, Michigan, as that's where Ted is originally from, and eventually we veer over into politics. I do generally try and limit the political talking points on this show, um, but Ted is actually somebody who holds some different views from myself. So if you're someone who disagrees with the politics that I have shared on this show, then you might really enjoy what Ted has to say. And if you think you're someone that aligns more closely with the views that I have, then I ask that you hear out the conversation that we have. Um, I thought that while we had different views during our chat, we kept it civil, and I think that this is the kind of stuff we need more of. While I still don't necessarily agree with many of Ted's political views, I do think that Ted is a really good guy, and I'm glad that we're friends. I think that to get out of the polarized climate that we find ourselves in, this is the kind of thing that we need to see and, and hear more of. Um, we just need to, to understand that just because we disagree with some folks, we can still enjoy and value each other. Um, we don't have to, to villainize and, and characterize each other. Either way, enough of me trying to preface everything. Uh, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation with Ted. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Thank you so much for joining Ted Moss. How are you doing today, man? Great. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, <laughs> so Ted, I actually had the pleasure of meeting, as many of the guests I've had here recently, um, but I had the pleasure of meeting in Orlando at PodFest. Um, yeah. That was your first time there, right? Yeah, well, it was, and I'm glad you think of it as a pleasure. <laughs> I try it was and just keep the okay for me. We're just kind of okay. <laughs> no, no, it's nice meeting you. I don't know that I deem it a pleasure, but it was nice meeting you, Walker. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, my feeling on podcast or PodFest, I should say, is uh, it, people like yourself that I met were made the trip worth it. But the actual content of the show itself or the conference itself, pretty lacking. I mean, it's, I don't know where else you can get around that many people who are into podcasting. So, you know, still really cool, but right. I don't know as far as the actual session, which I, I'm sure none of the audience gives a shit about this because none of them are ever going yeah. to podcast anyway, but <laughs> yeah. whatever. Well, you know what? I, I think it's like most things that there were some really, really, really good things about it, but mm -hmm. there was also some things you had to tolerate. And from yeah. my perspective, and I've been to a lot of seminars throughout my career, uh, from my perspective, um, it wasn't as well organized as it should have been. It wasn't as clear what was optional activities, what were required activities, what activities you had to pay more for. So there was a lot of that going on. But there were people there, if you could find them, that were really quite talented and quite well-spoken when it comes to podcasting and YouTube. But you kind of got to seek them out and figure out where they're going to be. 
And also they scheduled it so there was a lot of really good people talking at the exact same time. So you'd have nothing to do for hours. Then all of a sudden you're pulled between two different uh, uh, lectures that you want to go to. So that was kind of weird. Yeah, well, I, and I, I mean, I don't know. I, I have to say that probably my reservations with it are largely because I'm just so damn cheap um, because I spent way more <laughs> on it than I wanted to. In every t- like, it felt like everything was an upsell, right? Like, like I, yeah. I don't. I, I'm sure it's not this nefarious, but it almost felt like, oh, well, they no. scheduled all the breakout sessions on top of each other yeah. so they can upsell no, you no, the videos dude, later, right. you know? Yeah, no, like, no, no, no. Abs- right. you're right. It, it was kind of felt that way, and. I felt uh, even when I was trying to plan out which sessions to go to, I kind of were, they were trying to upsell me to go to better sessions. And I'm like, hold it. I've already spent what, 450 bucks or whatever, plus <laughs> lodging, plus travel. You know, I should have a basic itinerary of decent things to go to. And then if I have mm-hmm. a special interest, you should upsell me. But I think that falls uh, on the organizers it's not necessarily the fault of some of the presenters that were really high oh, quality no. presenters. There were occasions when they kind of backdoored you where you got in, sat down at one presentation and all of a sudden you're listening to the women's lib movement and you're thinking, yeah, I didn't sign up. for this. Not sure how this happened, but she podcasting wants to tell me uh, that I'm a, I'm not a nice person because I'm an old white man or something. I don't know. That was very weird. Well, they might've just met you. That might yeah. be why they think you're not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, actually, they were mad at me before I arrived because I, you know me, <laughs> Ted talks too much, and I communicated right. some things that uh, that I probably shouldn't have said. But that's where <laughs> it goes, you know. Well, so so yeah, so um, obviously that's why you were at Podfest. You have a podcast, Ted talks too much, um, which kind of leverages right. your background as a comedian, right? It it kind of does, it, and it also leverages the fact that I talk way too much. <laughs> so so well and, and and so that's one of the reasons that i think you and i hit it off so well was just i've always had an interest in comedy and you know have dabbled a tiny amount not actually ever a, a working comic or anything though um but you did that for how many years did you do stand-up well you know uh this, my stand-up career was only six years and but prior to that oh i had 30 years of public speaking okay so I've done a lot of presentations and those kind of things on technical subjects. But uh, once I got out of the business, I just, uh, I had written a book. And so I was doing uh, public speaking on my book, which was on parenting. And it turns out that uh, you run out of people to talk to. That Mm. uh, good parents don't need you and bad parents don't show up. And I thought, (laughs) what the hell? (laughs) Who am I going to talk to? (laughs) Cause I like talking. And, um, I thought, you know, I really don't care. You know, I, I, I made my money. I'm pretty much retired. So I don't, I'll put the book up for sale at a really low price and not even worry about working that. And I thought, but I want to do some public speaking. And so I went down to the local uh, college. It was like a small business school and asked them if they would uh, hire me to be some kind of professor or teacher that I could teach business classes. Cause I took a business from really nothing to one of the top in the nation at what we did. And I thought, I'm going to have some things to share. And they wanted me to go back to school and get my master's degree in education before they would hire me. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. And so I was just sitting around going, I want to talk to somebody. And I thought, I know I'll go to an open mic. They'll give me a microphone and audience. I'm in. There you go. Let's do it. Yeah. 
So that's how it, that's how it started. And that's an audience that's career. expected to shut up and just let you talk. In fact, well, it's not yeah, a conversation. Well, it's just you. Well, go. yeah, <laughs> we should explain to that people on the way in the door because there's some people that <laughs> clearly do not understand that. Some people think you're on TV and like you can't hear what they're saying. Too is like really. <laughs> Is there something else going on? Other times they don't turn off the TVs in the bar while you're performing. Oh man. I was, you know what? I was down in uh, Key West. We were performing down in Key West. Nice people down there. Went to a great show. uh, And me and a buddy of mine were good enough to be on that professional show that they had. But he, when we talked to the guy, he said, you know what? We can't fit you in tonight, but if you want to come back tomorrow, um, we have a drunken spelling bee and we sometimes do, comedy during that so we said cool we'll do that so we went to this bar and it was a very small narrow bar where people are just sitting at the bar staring at tvs watching sports and a few people behind them at you know uh, tables and at the end of it they're having a drunken spelling bee where they're bringing up drunks to spell words and people are half paying attention and people are cheering for the games and people are loud about the drunk people and then all of a sudden, the middle of the day stops and, well, now for some stand-up comedy from Flint, Michigan. And, <laughs> all righty. <laughs> Here we go. So I'm wow. competing with the drunks who have been yelling out things, and I'm competing with the TVs and the games that are on. But turns out you tell enough pussy jokes, people turn around and say, who the hell is saying that? <laughs> yeah. So we got their attention. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's weird how, you know, like growing up, most of my exposure to stand-up comedy, which I guess probably this is true for most kids, but it was just, you know, arena shows on HBO, like Chris Rock right. Comedy right. Hour, Dave Chappelle Comedy Hour. And, right. you know, those are obviously the, the top end of the game and all that, and I get that. But I just thought that that's how comedy worked. And then, yeah, like when I used to do open mics, I used to MC an open mic here in my town. And Right, I remember you saying that. Now, where was that? Was it a local bar? Uh, yeah, they had a – they had a. it was a bar – that you know had pool tables and karaoke but then they also had a separate room connected to the side that was uh, that was a, a comedy club and they actually had headliners come in a headliner to feature oh. act every week and they'd be there oh cool so i would open on a thursday night doing open mic and then the feature and headliner had one set on thursday and then right. friday and saturday there was no open mic and the feature and the headliner would do two shows each on friday and saturday so right. i would what I would kind of audience did you get did you get uh, many people or did you get more yeah, than 20 I, people? Oh yeah. I would say that the, I would say the room, I mean, I have no idea what the capacity of it was. I would guess it was probably 80 people on a regular basis. Oh, that, that's I don't, good. Oh, that's yeah, good. A, no, no. If you get 80 people, that's good. Yeah. But the, well, but the, so the reason I bring it up though is that I guess my, what I'm trying to say is that like, I thought that there was this reverence for comedy because that's what I, how I feel about it. Right. All right. But to your point, <laughs> There's not. <laughs> not so and, much. And <laughs> honestly, you're the, fighting for it. Right. Well, in the biggest show that I ever saw there, as far as, I mean, most of the time, most of the tables were full. But one week they had one of those hypnotists come in. And they're the hypnotists that bring up people from the crowd. Right. And then have do them do weird sex stuff usually. And, uh, right. Okay, yeah. And I mean, sex it was standing. Chicken, I don't know. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> they make it say embarrassing stuff. I mean, there's not actually it's not a donkey show. Oh, this wasn't thank God! Wild. Thank God! Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, I mean, not it's standing room only, and then, yes. 
and that's the only that that was the most popular show I saw, and that's not even comedy. That's it's yeah, like you know what I mean. It's not even stand up, but that's yeah. what people poured out for. So I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I guess drunken spelling is funnier. I don't know. <laughs> well, it, well, the I think there's a special art to stand up comedy, um, but. The problem is people don't have a realistic expectation of what a comedy show is going to be because of these things you see on HBO and Netflix and those things. Because those truly are three different shows um, that they cut into one, and they cut the best version of that joke, and if the joke didn't fly, they take it out. They're prompting the audience. They have warm-up comedians to get everybody up and running. But a real comedy show is kind of a live experience that you can't have any other way it mm-hmm. really is a interaction a communication between you and the people sitting there and you have to be the writer the producer the director and the actor you can't tell a joke that's ever been told before so there's mm-hmm. a lot on the comics plate and most of these guys have told these jokes hundreds and hundreds of times you know in rehearsals or practice or other open mics in order to prepare for this moment Unfortunately, people see it as a personal interaction sometimes, and then they start talking to you or heckling. And it's like, dude, if you did not come to rehearsal, <laughs> quit helping me. <laughs> your job, you know, that is not your line, dude. I don't know who told you it was, but well, and so, that's, that's unfortunate. So go ahead. Yeah, well, I was, well, so was going to ask, because you, you mentioned something there that I think is kind of, there's maybe different schools of thought. Um, there are some comics and I'm, I'm just going to use the most famous examples, but there are comedians like sure. a, say a Jerry Seinfeld where yes. he tours on one act for 20 years. I mean, retired the act famously, like the act yeah. is so well known that he actually was able to retire and then made a documentary about him writing an entirely new act. But, right. but he views it as if you see Jerry Seinfeld, you're going to, you're going to see this act. That's this really fine tuned you know, again, years long thing that he's been working on. Whereas right. like someone like Louis CK, which yeah, I know he fell from grace, but whatever, like Louis CK, right. he was doing a new special every year. So yeah. none of this keeping, you know, all, all new content annually. Right. What do you right. think is the, uh, I guess, a, how did you approach it? And do you think there's a best way or do you think it goes both ways or what are your thoughts on that? Cause I think that's well, an interesting <laughs> That is, that is, that's very interesting. Well, what people should understand is you have to write all your own jokes. And number two, you're supposed to be funny. And Mm. number three, it's a timed event. In comedy, they talk about the type five. Everybody starts with five minutes. Mm -hmm. And they, with one minute to go, at four minutes, they show you a light that only you can see. And it's Mm -hmm. your one minute warning. And then at five, they flash that light, meaning get off the stage. Now, those sets can be five minutes or six or seven minutes, but that's pretty typical. They're pretty short. Mm -hmm. And in, like, Ann Arbor Showcase, which is a nice big uh, comedy club uh, in Michigan, uh, if you go more than 15 seconds over, you'll never perform there again. Mm. So it's important that you know what you're going to say and how long it's going to take to say that. So basically, the owner of that club is known as the Time Nazi. (laughs) <laughs> like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No soup for you. No more time. I'm sorry. You went over. I, it was actually funny. We had a. It was funny. We had a comic out there one time who had a puppet 
Mm. Which is not my favorite kind I of comedy. I hate it. <laughs> I do too. It's, they're horrible. I hate it. <laughs> they're horrible. That dude Jeff Dunham, who's super famous. Yeah, I cannot no, stand that fucking guy. Yeah, no. but he's, if you're gonna do a puppet, that's as good as the puppet's gonna be. And that's my point. Is that's the creme de la creme, and <laughs> that's the pinnacle of puppeting. <laughs> right. Well, this guy was not that good, and <laughs> the weird thing was, people started laughing really late in his set, and so he didn't stop, and mm. he went over by a minute and a half. As I was walking out, the owner of the Ann Arbor Club was cussing him out, telling him he's never going to perform there again. And swear to God, swear to God, the guy was blaming it on the puppet. Because <laughs> I well, it was me, dude. It was him. I was ready to get off. <laughs> God, were you serious, dude? You did have puppet, issues. Did he, did he keep doing the puppet too and have the puppet? No, 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 no. Back? He was oh, just arguing on, on behalf. He said that, you know, the puppet's put away. It's his fault. It's not mine. You got to talk to the puppet because I'm. I was good. I was done. I had said everything I needed to say. <laughs> but in any case, I guess the point I'm getting to is there's time constraints on comedy. And when I remember I was working with a girl, we were going over to, a, I think it was a competition of some sort in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is about three hours away. We were riding together and she came from improv mm. and uh, she was really, really new. And I asked her, I said, okay, we got to do six minutes or maybe it was seven minutes. Yeah. Seven minutes. How many jokes are you going to tell in seven minutes? And she said, four. <laughs> I said, four. Those really? better be some good stories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you better be naked while you're telling the jokes. I don't know. You're going to lose their attention. <laughs> are you a stripper too? I don't know. And she said, well, how many are you going to tell? And I said, I actually have 56 punchlines <laughs> or laugh points in my seven minutes. Now, not all of them are going to hit. But if I can get 20, that's a good seven minutes. Right. The rule of thumb is you're supposed to get a laugh every 12 to 15 seconds. Mm. Now, you can go 30 seconds or you can go longer, but then you need to get a multiple laughs. So you have to get a laugh, then a tag word, then another laugh. Right. Uh, if, you, if you're going to be a good comic, you got to keep the people laughing and entertained. So when I started, back to your original question, you know, I was taught to be funny fast. Say something pretty funny and, and carry it on and be as funny as you can. And then when time's up, walk off the stage, say thanks. Yeah, well, I mean, so, I mean, it almost kind of sounds like maybe the point to some extent as well is that if you're an amateur comic or or maybe not amateur even, but just a, a not an established, you know, if you're not famous, if you're not Louis yeah. Gay and Dave Chappelle and these guys, you don't really have the luxury of being able to kind of meander through things in that yeah. same way. <laughs> You don't, and that's a double-edged sword, and I'll tell you why. Um, if they know you, if they're famous, they know what they're getting, and they're right. walking in because they're your fans, they're your fans, right. and they have an expectation that this is the kind of trip we're going to go on. If you're new, you can say anything you want, and they don't know what you're going to say. And key to being good at stand-up comedy is being likable. And so you have to introduce yourself. Mm. You have to take... 30 seconds to one minute to just talk to the people and say, Hey, my name's Ted and I'm from here. And it's really great to be here and acknowledge them, say something about the room. It doesn't have to be hysterical, but you have to build a rapport. And then you have to tell them, this is my character or point of view. And I'm going to discuss things with you or talk to you about things from this point of view and this perspective. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you to hate me for it. Right. And, and a lot of guys do it in different ways. They go, I'm a real dummy, dude. I don't know why I think this, but it seems to me, you know, they they preface things 
to give them an excuse to say it, meaning I'm going to say some things that are crude or rude, but I'm hoping that you like me enough Well, where you'll find these things uh, amusing too. So there's a lot of strategy to it, and it takes a long time. It really takes, I would say, two to three years to even find your voice, just Mm -hmm. decide you know, what perspective you're going to speak from and what they will accept from you. Right. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, I, yeah, it, it, I don't know for me, it, I did it when I was, uh, you know, 20, 1920 yeah. is when I first did it. And then were you funny? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> Hell yeah. that sounds yeah. self-congratulatory. I, no, 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 dude, if you're funny and they're laughing, you know it. If you're trying to be funny and you're not laughing, you know that too. So I don't think it's a bad question. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't, I, I mean, it's not like I was, you know, it's not like people were like, when's your next HBO special? I mean, I wasn't that, you know, I wasn't just watering <laughs> yeah. it, but, but yeah, I got laughs and I mean, you know, it wasn't uncomfortably silent all the time though. I've right. had those before. Right. Um, but anyway, but, and, and then stopped doing it and then didn't try again for a long time. And then when I was about 30, so about 10 years later, I decided to try it again and I really hoped that it was going to be this thing that just like, like again, some fucking cliche movie moment or something. I'm a millennial. So I think that I'm special. <laughs> um, just an old millennial, but yeah, <laughs> but so I, I thought that I would do it and like, it would be this, you know, sweep me off my feet experience where I would be like, Oh God, comedy is what I've always been looking for. I've been, I'm so inspired. Yeah. And I did not feel that way at all. I hated sitting through open mic nights. I just, yeah, there are yeah. so many bad open micers. I mean, but you know, you know what? It makes you feel good about your stuff, though. Like, the worst <laughs> you are, like, dude, I am hilarious compared to him. I may only get two glass, but he sucks. <laughs> oh man, but just sitting through two hours of someone just yeah. and saying, yeah, but that's the way it is. You know what? I did. Uh, I did the comedy store out in L.A. We went mm. out there on. Uh, our broken road comedy tour and we just got in we knew the guy running the door because he had done comedy with us back uh in detroit mm. and so we said dude we want to get on the open mic night can we do that and they've got three rooms at the comedy store and the bottom room is called the belly room and he said yeah we can get in the belly room so we went back there and the guy at the door said uh you know where's your tickets or whatever and we said well we're comics and he said tell me a joke and so my buddy told him a joke. He said, yep, you guys are comics. You can sit right up here on the side. So, <laughs> so we got in and we watched these performances. When we walked in, the guy on stage was a guy just standing there in his, in his briefs, his underwear, his BVDs, telling jokes. And the jokes were not funny. Mm-hmm. He's a good-looking guy, great shape. And somehow, I think, I think his pants had, were down around his ankles, but somehow he felt this was the way to do comedy. And then a really, really good-looking woman, this is L.A., so maybe they're all good-looking, I don't know, came <laughs> up and just uh, a lot of energy. She opened up. I thought she's going to be hilarious. After her first sentence, I hated her. She didn't mm. say anything funny. She wasn't clever. She was just loud. And it occurred to me that a lot of the people in L.A. are want to be actors. Mm-hmm. And they want to perform. They want to be on stage somewhere. And if nothing else, they can not open mic. They'll go down there and they'll try that. They'll try anything. Mm-hmm. So they're just trying to perform and really aren't interested in learning the art of comedy or don't necessarily have any talent for comedy. Well, I got to tell you, though, we were just about to go up and they brought in somebody who wasn't on the list 
and a fellow by the name of Bill Burr mm-hmm. walked in and performed. He did 15 minutes in front of an audience of, I'm going to say there was only 35 people there. And I thought, oh my God, Bill Burr, and he's one of the biggest in the nation right now. Mm-hmm. I thought I'm going to get to perform at the comedy store right after Bill Burr, which is kind of a cool thing. But he was there just kind of working some stuff out. And I'm not sure he was, uh, he wasn't hilarious in what he was saying, but he was saying new stuff. He was kind of trying this and talking about this and talking about that. But ultimately in comedy, you go through levels. I mean, you, you build your act, you build your jokes, and there's some structure to jokes. I mean, some are misdirection. Like I would say, you know, I went to Emerson Junior High and Emerson was educational primarily because it was 80% black, making it 20% scared. <laughs> I was black. Right. You know, and so you, a little misdirection and timing, you know, um, is important. So you build your act, but then once you know your jokes and you can recite your jokes, you have to kind of take that leap to turn back into a, person who sounds like they're just communicating or sharing information instead of reciting jokes right now if you listen to a podcast that's you know not that great a podcast you'll hear people reading script Mm. here's my opening it's really good to be here and and you think yeah you're reading it you know right talk to me you know tell me something you think i want to hear some mistakes i want to hear it that it's it's really kind of a natural conversation because i'm that's more compelling to me I'm drawn to people who are are actually sharing something, not reciting a story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have, you know, I have some family members and friends and things like that that will tell me that they think that uh, the walk show maybe could be trimmed down a bit or or maybe you could do some shorter episodes. And it's like, I I totally get that, you know, I have hour to two hour episodes. It's a significant time investment, so I get it. But it's because of exactly what you just said. Like, I want to try and actually have real conversations with people, not, you know, especially if I get someone on who wants to promote whatever thing they're doing, which is totally sure. cool. I'm happy sure. to help them out. But yeah. I don't want to just talk for 10 minutes about your bullet points and then call it good. Like, that's not entertaining. It's not, I, I would not listen to that myself. You know what I Most mean? Most podcasts get better the further you get into them. That's what I you think, know? right? And people, you always have the option of, you know, turning the thing off. surprising thing that you said there as far as i'm concerned is that you actually have friends and family because that's news <laughs> to me i mentioned podcast i thought you were just kind of living just alone right? yeah, yeah someplace in missouri living are you in missouri dude i don't even know where you are <laughs> someplace, living alone I, wait a some minute, gamer wait. in some basement someplace in missouri or something i don't know so that's all mostly true i don't have a basement but otherwise you're right um <laughs> But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is the guy from fucking Flint, Michigan of all yeah. places right now hating on where I live? Absolutely. Dave? Like, Flint, I do you even know what Flint is? We're famous, dude. Flint, Flint is where General Motors started, which is the largest corporation in the world. Mm-hmm. And actually people moved here because they get a living wage. And because of General Motors, people 
moved up into the middle class. It was actually the foundation of the middle class. Also, in 1936, Flint is where they had the first sit-down strike, where the people didn't leave their jobs. They actually stayed on the job, which formed the National UAW Union. So it also gave the middle class an ability to have a working wage. And so Flint was significant in the history of the country. So what happened where RoboCop came true? RoboCop. Have you ever seen RoboCop? Have you seen how they I think I, a long time ago I saw <laughs> I think I saw RoboCop. I don't know. Oh man. Who starred in that? Sylvester Stallone or something? I don't know. No, RoboCop. I don't actually I can't remember the guy's name, but I don't know the, the original guy, the RoboCop. They made a robot cop that was supposed to take care of people and he was extra strong. Well, it, the point isn't about RoboCop. The point <laughs> is it, <laughs> I can't tell if you actually don't know what I'm talking about. It takes no, I have no idea. Point. Dude, I'm old and confused, so oh, you're going to have to explain it to me. You'll have to. You'll have to. I'll send you a clip. I'll send you a clip of RoboCop. This has to do with Flint, Michigan, it General Motors, and RoboCop. It has to do with Detroit. and it shows- I, Flint is not Detroit, dude. Ah, Flint had the highest violent crime rate per capita in the United States when Detroit was ranked fourth. Come on. <laughs> We're talking Flint, where I grew up. <laughs> The, Flint is the city where Michael Moore never lived. Can you believe that? <laughs> I swear to God, he never slept one night inside the city of Flint, Michigan, yet he made a reputation. He made a name for himself and a career out of the fact that he was his hometown was Flint, Michigan, That's which wild. is all bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, actually, um, Michael Moore had a more significant impact on me than I would have thought he would have because I, I remember when I was. Your hair is very similar to Michael's. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you, I think. Um, it's the quarantine. I can't get it cut. You know what I mean? What I know. I know. I'm in the same boat, dude. Um, but no, so he, you know, he came out with Fahrenheit 9-11. And that yeah. wasn't his first documentary, but that was one. And, and I went and saw it in the theater and was just completely riveted. It was just like, oh, my God, this is crazy. I can't believe that he's revealed all this. And then... About a year after that, I saw the Republican response to that, which was called Fahrenheit 9-11. And, yeah, you just see that, not that he just made everything up, but that he just completely sensationalized so much of well, that's what, he, what he put in. That, that's, that's what, what I mean. Does. And so it really turned me off. Like, I had a buddy recently that wanted me to watch some documentary, and I hadn't watched it. And he said, why? why wouldn't you watch that? And I was like, you know, I guess it's because I'm afraid it's going to be over-sensationalized, and I hate being conned, basically. And that all traces back to Michael Moore and Fahrenheit 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> I was naive and thought that you. it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, his first one was Roger and Me, where he stood out in front of the um, General Motors building in Detroit mm. and screamed at him for pulling out of Flint, Michigan, and claimed that people were – impoverished because General Motors left and they had some kind of social contract where General Motors never should have left the city that where they were founded. And there was people on the streets selling uh, rabbits for pets or food. That was Mm. the deal. Um, And it was all sensational hype, but Michael Moore, you know what? He's a really smart guy. Actually, he's about my age and he was sitting on the school board of Davison high school. Davison's a city where he grew up, by the way. Yeah, when he was 18 years old. And so he was politically active, very young, and he was always extremely liberal. And, uh, you know, back when I was young and we were all protesting the Vietnam War and all those things, you know, I was like, yeah, it's okay, whatever. But he was even out there then. But obviously uh, he has sensationalized everything, but yeah, so does everything. 
you know, Jesse Jacks, everyone, Jesse Jackson, all these people are, you know, they're kind of ambulance chasers. There's something I can scream about and I'm going to make some money off it. And that's fine. That's what they're doing. But you need to take it all in. You need to listen, but you need to listen with a filter and you need to listen to both sides. Right. I think yeah. that's good. So it's just, I mean, it's just a, a thing that I constantly talk about on this show and I will continue to harp on is, is just trying to not not be sensationalized and, and to some extent it's it's to your point it's impossible to avoid because that's what so many, so much stuff is but recognizing that for what it is and and trying to work through to see the nuance you know in in right. whatever this topic may be whether it's politics or what well so you know uh, you know i was obviously teasing you about flint or whatever i don't actually know anything about it i was being sensational yeah. um you were good job well and <laughs> Screw you, audience. No, I'm kidding. Um, but so, um, but really, I, I am curious. What is it like as someone who's lived there? What is the actual truth of what this water situation has been like in Flint? Because I don't know anything other than what we saw on TV two years ago, oh. which is that they're they're bringing in bottled water, and that was kind of the end of what I heard. And other than yeah. that, you see people who don't live there. Yeah, so we need to save Flint, but I don't ever talk to anyone from Flint. So, well, I know a little bit about it. I actually don't live in Flint now. I grew up in Flint as a child. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so, in, like in junior high, we uh, fled the city and we went to the impoverished suburbs, which was Flint Light. It was a suburb that was exactly like Flint, only with dirt roads. So it was just okay. a little bit poorer, and that's where I ended up going to high school and stuff. But gotcha. I do know a little bit about the Flint water crisis in that uh, if you listen to my podcast, TedTalksTooMuch.com, TedTalksTooMuch.com, if you listen to my podcast, I mentioned it at the beginning of every podcast because it's kind of a sad situation as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. But what the story is, and by the way, if you go to the Flint water plant, my name is on a plaque in the water plant because my grandfather, who I'm named after, was the director of public works of the city of Flint when they built the water purification plant in Flint. Mm, that's kind of cool. Yeah, well, it is cool if people were one dying. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, well, but I mean, it's. I mean, whenever he was working on it, it worked, right? I mean, it. Well, it, it, it still works. It always worked. Uh, here, here's what happened. Uh, and I'll try and make this brief. But basically, uh, Flint shut down the water plant. They quit drawing water out of the Flint River. Flint River was pretty well. Uh, Polluted due to all the factories. We had like 10 factories in Flint. So, it's you know, it's like Gary, Indiana. It's like you don't want to be drinking out of the river if you can help it, even though they could purify it. It wasn't the best source. You want to pull water out of the Great Lakes if you're living in Michigan. That's the water you want to drink. And Detroit was already doing that. And since Detroit had a pipeline to Flint, they said, well, we'll pipe up water for all your citizens, which they did. And they did that happily for many years. Well, they kept jacking the price up on the people of Flint higher and higher and higher because they figured they had a customer that couldn't leave and the people of flint were suffering because the factories were going away you know the, the town was i don't want to say it was in receivership but the town was in bad financial straits and said we got to cut down on some costs and we can't afford paying these astronomical water prices uh, for to detroit and trying to pass them on to our customers so we're going to put it in our own pipeline, which means we're going to run a pipeline about 50 miles or so to the Great Lakes and bring our water over ourselves. And when they did that, Detroit caught wind of it, of course, because, you know, it was public information. And so they jacked up the price even more. And so the people that were then running the city, which were some outside people that were brought in to run it because of the financial problems, uh, made a decision that we would start drawing water out of the Flint River again 
and running it through the water plant, which is mm-hmm. fine. And they could do that. And it was just something to hold Flynn over until the pipeline was, you know, finished. Well, it, there's more to it than pulling the water out and running it through some filters. You've got to do chemical, uh, you have to put chemicals in the water to kill off things. And there's certain bacteria that are good and bad. It, it, there's a whole chemistry to purifying water and sending it out to people. Well, the lines that go out to all the homes are lead pipes that were put underground many, 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 many years ago. You know, back in the 20s and 30s, a long time ago, and they've been buried forever. But corrosion in and of itself will put a coating on which will insulate the water from the lead if there's enough corrosion. So when you send the water out, you have to put additives in the water that maintain the coating of the lead pipes. Mm. They didn't do that. Mm. And so the interior rusting or coating uh, broke away and lead started leaching into the water. And it's through the whole pipe system, through the whole city. And when that happened, people were getting water that looked really bad. They're getting brown water out of their taps Mm -hmm. in the city of Flint. And so people were hollering and complaining and they took it to the city and eventually the mayor was on TV drinking brown water going, see, this stuff won't hurt you. It's okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then they brought in some people to investigate it. And uh, the, one of the investigators sent in some reports and said, no, the lead count is really high in this. This is contaminated. You can't have. And when he sent those emails off, there was a breakdown in the communication and people were not passing it on. And people even wrote back, um, it's just, just the people of Flint, anyhow. Honestly, said that wow. it didn't matter. Yeah, it didn't matter because these are poor people and we really don't care. So that was found out eventually. Now, um, there's a number of people that have died because of the water poisoning, or they believe it's because of the water poisoning. Uh, primarily, I think, or one of the lead effects was Legionnaire's disease. Mm. And my best buddy... Uh, golfing buddy for many years, for 20 years, his dad died of Legionnaires, and he was the lead defendant in in one of the suits. So, wow. So the problem is now Flint has pipes that have gone that are out going out to thousands, hundreds of thousands of homes that are going to contaminate the water, and they're trying to sell people on the idea: well, the lead levels aren't so high; they're going to really hurt you. So that's the story on the Flint water plants and the problem with the water in Flint. So, but people are still not using the water. Is that correct? Like, I mean, it's been several years now since this was all kind of uncovered and there's still yeah, what, what do you think? bottled water. You ever take a shower in bottled water? <laughs> no. Bottled water does not spray up, dude. It right. only sprays down. Sure. Uh, you know, I, if you, if you're living in a house in Flint and you have a faucet, well, that'll turn on and you need water. Are you always using bottled water? You're poor. You don't have any money. You're living in Flint. What do you think? Right. Yeah. So it sucks. And you'd, my opinion, and it doesn't mean I'm right, but my opinion, it should have been treated like Katrina. It should have been, this is a national disaster. We need some national funding to support it. We need to go in and rip up all the pipes. Yeah. All the pipes. Right. All the pipes in the Flint need to be torn up 
and redone. You can start one section at a time, but you got to get this done. And they haven't done that. So they kind of put Flynn on the back burner and said, you know, oh, well. Well, that's and that's why I asked about it, because, you know, again, it was a really big story. I don't know. Again, I don't remember exactly how long ago, but a few years ago. And then it's something that, again, you see people mention. Um, but news cycle, dude. Yeah. You know, we got to worry about trying to, you know, get Trump out of office. No, we got to worry about um, not going out and talking to people. No, we got to worry about what's China doing. I mean, it's news cycle. Right. Yeah, they're, you know, it's kind of like people are really sympathetic until they forget about it. And then they act like it's not there. Let's talk about kids in cages at the kids being separated, fake parents at the border and not worry about people drinking contaminated water in Flint. Now, the population of Flint has gone from it's it's not that big a city, really. It's gone from about two hundred and fifty thousand down to about 96,000. Wow. And you can't give a house away. I you can buy a property. house for yeah, you can buy a house for $10,000 in Flint. That's wild. You want to live in Flint, dude? No. <laughs> Bring your own bottled water. <laughs> I know. I know. Huh. You know, it, it's sad. You know, I think my office was in Flint years ago, and I think Flint made a big mistake. Uh they didn't know how to diversify, and they were heavily dependent on tax income from all the factories for General Motors. So they didn't diversify their economy at all. And I think at one time they had the opportunity to have some Indian casinos in Flint. And with very poor foresight, they decided that that would bring in too much violence and crime. Well, the highest violent crime rate per capita in the United States, how bad can it be? <laughs> right. Maybe these criminals will clean it up. I mean, are you kidding me? What? I don't. You know, I right. don't know. And and you'd have you'd have a source of income. But when you're a hundred percent dependent on the factories, and there was a lot of trickle down jobs. I mean, the people at the factory went to the bar, went to the grocery stores, went to the schools, with the and all the whole economy was based on General Motors. And when you lose, you're shutting down plants, so you're putting out of work. 10 to 40,000 people at a WAP, you know, like, that's why I'm not going to do that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's weird. You drive around in these big vacant fields. Now they tore everything down. So it's just a big vacant piece of land because they didn't want to pay taxes on the structures. Huh. That's why they bulldoze those things and remove them, but they're just big plots of land. That's and it's really sad. Yeah. It's sad because Flint was so instrumental in the building of America. Actually, a lot of the lumber that uh, built America came through Flint. See, Flint uh, had a lot of lumber up in northern Michigan, and they'd bring it down to Flint, and uh, they built all these uh, railroad hubs out of Flint. And so they were distributing uh, lumber across the country. And then, because of that, it became a carriage town. They made more horse-drawn carriages (laughs) in Flint than any other city in the nation. I mean, hundreds of thousands of carriages, (laughs) you know, Tens of thousands every month shipping out of Flint all over the country. And that's actually how General Motors started. Um, there was a guy. Do you want to hear this story? About yeah, General yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, this is interesting. I, I mean, too much information, Ted. No, no. <laughs> You're supposed to be talking comedy. Um, I brought it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was a guy that came to Flint that was a real, real good salesman. His name was Billy Durand. 
Mm. And Billy could sell anything to anybody. He was just that kind of guy. And he got off the train just outside of Flint and was going to go to the other side of town, hopped on a horse-drawn carriage, and he noticed that the springs on this carriage were really good springs. They were really nice and firm but bouncy. He said, what is up with these springs? This is great. Because horse-drawn carriages on dirt roads, they were very bumpy rides. Sure. And he said, well, we got a guy out in Owasso, a little town not too far away, that has a heat treatment that he's doing to the steel to make these springs this way. Hmm. He said, well, take me to him. And so Billy Dran, this excellent salesman, went out and talked to the guy and said, look it, I want to I want to use your springs and build carriages with them and sell them, but I want exclusive rights to this heat treatment that you're doing. I don't want you doing it for anybody else because you're set up to do it, and I'm going to give you all my spring business. And he said, okay. So Billy Duran came to Flint, and he started a carriage company to compete with the other carriage companies. Now, I'm, I'm serious. They were shipping out – these carriage companies were shipping out 10,000 carriages a month because they had these big train spurs from the lumber industry, and they had a way to send them out across the country. So they started a carriage. It was called the, I think it was called the Flint Carriage Company or something like that. But a guy by the name of uh, Dallas Dort ran the factory and Billy Duran took one of the first carriages they made. I think the very first one to uh, a show in Chicago. He only had one. And at this show in Chicago, he sold 500 carriages. Got a commitment for the purchase of 500 carriages just by taking it to the show and demonstrating how these springs made it a better ride. Hmm. And then he came back and said, well, we got to get up and running, dude. We got, we got an order for 500 and I'm going to travel around the country and set up dealerships for our horse drawn carriages. And that's what Billy Duran did. He got on the train and he traveled around the country and he said, look at, we got these special springs. We got the special carriage and I, I'm willing to set you up as a, my exclusive distributor in this town, if you buy so many carriages or bring so many in or commit to so many or whatever his deal was and actually went out and, and set up hundreds and hundreds of dealerships across the country for these carriages. Then he came back to Flint and uh, a guy by the name of Buick built his own version of the internal combustion engine like Ford was doing down in Detroit. But it's a little bit different. He thought his engine was better. And he put it in one of uh, one of their carriages. Hmm. And he went to Billy Duran and said, you should send these out. You should sell these horseless carriages with these little motors in them. And Billy Duran had absolutely no interest in it whatsoever. <laughs> and so Buick would take his little thing, his little cart and buzz by his house day after day after day, <laughs> week after week, month after month. Finally, Billy Duran said, all right, dude, there might be some too. Who knows? We'll send one out. To each one of our uh, dealerships across the country. And that's how General Motors started. It was actually started really by way of a distribution system hmm. and then built backwards from that. Whereas Henry Ford was built from a manufacturing system and pushed forward from that. And then Henry tried to get control of everything from taking raw materials and making his own steel and then control everything and then ship it out. So the story of the story of General Motors, which became the largest corporation in the world, uh, started in Flint, Michigan, with a guy by the name of Billy Duran, Dallas Dort, and Buick. Huh. And then here, eighty years. You're, you're going to be tested on this later. There's going to be ten. <laughs> now, what do you remember? <laughs> How many carriages were they shipping out daily? Ten thousand. Oh no! Oh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no! What? What? 
<laughs> I'm sorry. That's probably way too much information. But you can hear more things like this at TedTalksTooMuch.com. <laughs> Which I will actually say. I will actually say because I'm sure people are going to be are going to be searching for it. Um, it's TED Talks and then the number two and then much. And when you Google it, you want to Google it all as one word or just Google the yeah. website itself, TedTalksTooMuch.com. Because if you Google TED Talks, you will not find TED Yeah, Talks. yeah. Well, I'm not as big as TED Talks yet, but I'm hoping to get sued by them. Sure. Get a little notoriety. Yeah, but all you got to do, all you got to do is use the number two and put it in your, uh, what's that top line, your address line. Yeah. You don't even have to Google it. Just put it in the top line, TedTalksTooMuch.com, and right. it'll take you to my Buzzsprout site. But actually, have you done this? I started up a, a YouTube channel where I'm separating my little one-minute clips from my podcast, from my videos, from my comedy tour, and it's all there. But you have to have – I think you have to have so many subscribers until they give you your name a to thousand. go to. Is it? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. So it's there, but I'm not sure how people locate it once they get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, I've got uh, – the walk show has a, a YouTube as well um, that hasn't been updated in a while now. I, I just put – I uploaded some episodes last week, I think, to it. but Right. Uh, but I don't have any video, so it's just either a still image or, you know, I've got some now that have some level of animation to them, but – I don't That's know. Good. It's well. Did you know? Did you know I hired a service that actually automates that that that, hap, that happens automatically. Every one of my podcasts I put on uh, Buzzsprout automatically uploads to YouTube. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's cool. What service is that? Uh, what is that? It's called Repurpose. Oh yeah. Yeah, and there's a fee for it. I it's sure. not much. I did twelve bucks a month or something. I don't know what it is. Everybody's charging something, but. Yeah, you know, they are. I, well, I got to spend my money on something before I die, you know, and <laughs> I only got about three years to do that. So, well, so, you know, kind of kind of related to Flint, because you'd mentioned it. And, and obviously, when I we talked prior to this recording, this had come up a bit. Um, But you you had talked about in your youth, we'll call it, uh, which is <laughs> not now. Long ago and far away. <laughs> right. Um <laughs> When me and Dirt were young, yes, I remember this. <laughs> yeah. No, but but you talked about how you used to be an active protester. And when you look at protests, and again, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not actually actively involved, but it seems like when we look through history, like the protests that were happening in the 60s and the 70s really meant something and like really did affect change in the world. And it seems like now there are protests all the time and it seems like it's more of a, I don't, I, I don't, and not, not that the people who are going are not genuine in their reasons for going, but just, it just doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to affect change. It doesn't seem that, I mean, president Trump won, they had the million woman March or whatever it was. And there's all these hats that everyone's wearing. It's this huge deal. And then it's just gone and nothing, nothing actually comes of any of it. Does what I'm saying even make sense? And do you have any? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm wondering, do you think maybe it's just a rite of passage that people at a certain age, a little certain state in their life feel like they're supposed to be protesting? So they protest and and not that they aren't don't have valid issues because they do. Sure. But, um, you know, the one thing about life is that life uh, that things change. People change. Our society changes. And uh, what is important to the people change. However, you know, we're a, we're a, we're a country because we're a, um, 
we're bound together by our culture. And our culture is really based on rules of behavior. You know, that uh, it's okay to sing as loud as you want, just don't do it in the middle of church. You know, that's socially inappropriate. You know, it's okay to shoot your gun, just don't walk into a grocery store and start shooting your gun. That's socially inappropriate. And so we all have these ideas of what our culture is and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. And the attitude towards those things change over time. And when you're young and optimistic, I think you have a utopian idea of the way things should be. And, and that's good. You should. And people strive for that, and they, they're willing to work for that. Now, when I was young, in the 60s and 70s, back when I was a hippie, and nobody likes to hear about when I was young, but I'll tell you <laughs> that our parents were what is referred to as the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the greatest generation were bigots and sexist and racist and homophobes and all that. They, <laughs> uh, they were. They, they were the right. ones that passed all the laws and put the white-only drinking fountains, and they believed that that was the correct way to be. They were the ones that believed that women shouldn't work. They were the ones that thought, you know, the governor of Georgia, George Wallace, standing in front of the school saying black kids can't come to our college. And this was approved by the greatest generation. Right. All the all these laws that we were protesting against were of and by the greatest generation. I don't know why they call them the greatest. Probably because they, like lemmings, all went out to war when it was time to go to war like the government wanted them to go. But <laughs> I think that's really a misnomer. But as a child of those people, now those were all very regimented people. You got to think about it. The day my dad graduated from high school, he walked right over to join the service, join the Navy that day. And everybody did that. If you did not do that, there was something wrong with you and everybody hated you. That was the only socially acceptable thing is to do exactly what the government wanted. Then when you got out, you went to college on the government GI Bill. Then you got special loans through the government. So the nanny state was big, but everybody conformed. You had a certain type of haircut. You wore a certain type of clothing. Women were, at, were supposed to act a certain type of way. It was all very structured and regimented. When we came up, the really the first thing that hit me was the Vietnam draft. Mm. I mean, I was shocked by it because I knew people that were 18 years old, didn't want to go to war. And by the way, your life stops today. You're going to go to boot camp and you're going to be in Vietnam in three months or two months or whatever it is. And some of them came back with no legs and some of them didn't come back. And others came back who have put people's heads on stakes and killed men, women, and children in villages. And that that's a real thing. Yeah. They also, we, we started learning about all these things that were going on thinking, we don't understand why we're in this civil war in this country we don't know anything about. We don't understand it and it just keeps escalating. And we're bombing the shit out of these people. Bombs don't discriminate. They're hitting, they're killing everybody. Right. And the government's saying one thing, the death toll is this, but we turn around and find out we're really in Cambodia. You're saying we aren't in Cambodia. And so all of a sudden, my generation built up this big mistrust towards the government. Mm. And what happens when you start mistrusting the government, you start questioning everything. Mm-hmm. And there were people that had real complaints and real issues. That's why when I was in college, we allowed everybody to speak. I don't care if you were a Marxist or if you were a racist or if you were a capitalist or I didn't care who you were. Go ahead and talk. 
and we ignored some and we listened to some. There were rallies every week and you decided where you fell. But we started the the ecological movements, the save the whale, the zero population growth, the uh, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movements, the women's movements, all these started in the 60s and 70s. It was great turmoil. And it's kind of, we kind of got on a roll saying, geez, you know, this is wrong and that's wrong. And we went to these, we'd have free concerts in the park because they allowed free speech. The majority of the people that owned the parks, that run in the parks, the people that run in the cities did not agree with us. But they allowed the minority to communicate what they thought in their space and their time without interruption. Mm. And so we were able to go out and decide what was important. Now, different people went at it different ways. You know, the, the students for a democratic Republic decided to bomb buildings or whatever they were called. And the black Panthers were very aggressive, but there was value in parts of what they said. Mm-hmm. And some of those messages changed over time, like Malcolm X changed over time. And really, we were looking for something that was more fair. And so I'm not sure that we got it. I think it's probably more fair, but it's not as fair as it could be. Nowadays, it seems like people are striving for a utopian uh, society. They, they compare what is to what could possibly be under the best circumstances instead of saying, how do we take what we have and make it a little bit better? And the sad thing to me is that people are shutting down speech on these topics. And I think that's dangerous. I think you got to allow people to speak and you have to allow people to speak when you disagree with them, give them their space, let them speak, listen or walk away, but let them speak. And at least you know where they stand and you're going to find some interesting or good points in a lot of that, but you're also going to find some things you say, that's absolutely wrong. I reject that. That's not, Correct. But if you're going to have a country, you have to have a culture and culture is based on rules. Rules are enforced by laws. And so ultimately, we all have to agree. That's why there's never going to be peace in the Middle East, because they have different cultures. They have two cultures living in the same place. That's why you have problems when you try to be multicultural, because you bring in people and they feel that one set of behavior is correct. And anything else is incorrect. Like if you were to uh, make a cartoon about Mohammed and him being gay or whatever, performing weird sex acts, their culture doesn't allow that. But they also think they have the right to impose their views and cultures on you. And that the more you're living together, the more that happens. So what you have to do is you can you can have differences But the major themes of your culture, the major rules of your culture, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, has to be agreed upon. And when somebody's outside of that, you know, they have to be told that that's outside, you know, our culture and the way we do things. So we're not going to accept that behavior at this time in this way. And that's okay to do. And people are so afraid of criticizing each other. You have this kind of dilemma where everybody's trying to be nice and understanding and let everybody do everything. But ultimately, you need some rules. Otherwise, you have no culture. I mean, originally, laws and rules were put together because of farming. That we as tribal people traveled around in small bands of people and and had our own rules and culture. But when we started farming, 
our community started growing larger and larger because we did not have to leave. We could stay at one place. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we developed these huge communities. Well, tribes come in and they have different cultures, different rules. But you, you can't necessarily apply your rules to pe other people of different cultures in the same area. So you have to have a unifying culture. That's why we have an American flag. That's why I expect people to have some respect for the flag because of what it represents. I mean, those things seem normal and natural to me. And to not discuss change, to say, you know, I disagree with you, so I'm not going to listen to you is, is a wrong approach. But we have to have something that unifies us. And we also have to keep pushing to make sure that we're being we're improving. We're being kind. So I understand that. I think you should protest. with the people that are protesting in Michigan, you know, that when what happened in Michigan on the coronavirus is, I don't know if you've heard, but the governor set up some very strict controls about staying in your house and not being allowed to do some things. And when this first happened, I was on another podcast and I told my buddy, I said, she's nuts. She's crazy. She should not do this. And the problem is when you start making laws or rules, and this goes to the base of a culture. Here's our culture now. I'm going to reestablish what our culture is. The base and the laws and rules include these things. If those things aren't agreed upon by the majority of people, I mean like 60, 70, 80, 90%, if they don't agree upon them, you're going to have a number of people going, well, we'll tolerate it maybe a little bit, but you know, then we're going to say, yeah, this isn't right. And when there's no direct correlation between the laws and what the intent of the laws is supposed to be, like we weren't allowed to go fishing in motorized boats. If you row out, you can fish. If you got a little electric motor, trolling motor, you're going to be arrested. You can't do that. You can't buy paint. Right. Don't know how that. I don't know how that affects the coronavirus. You know, you you know, you can't go outside to a park. Not sure how that. You know, make and so when. People don't see the correlation between the things you're demanding and what you're trying to achieve. What happens is you end up with competing groups. And when you're encouraging part of the people to report the other people, now you're encouraging this tribalism and people fighting, which is silly. It's crazy. This is how you get anarchy. This is how you get revolts and things. As a leader, you have to have a clear vision. And you have to explain to the people the reason you go, reason you just don't announce it. The reason you go on and make a presentation about it is so you can reason with the people and say, this is the logic and reasoning behind it. And this is why it's beneficial at all. We understand it's a sacrifice. We acknowledge that it's going to be difficult, but here's the benefit to it. But when you start making rules that don't line up with the benefit you're going for, you're going to have people that protest it. And then the next thing you're going to do is you're going to have anarchy. You're going to have people, um, protesting it, going, this isn't right. Because, you know, you were born with the right to walk around. For somebody to say, by the way, you got to get inside your house. You can't walk out in your yard. You know, a man and a daughter were arrested for playing catch in their backyard. Like, what? 
Right. How can that be? That's that. When I'm living with a girl inside the house, she's my kid. What do you think I'm giving her the virus by playing catch with her in my backyard? You know, there's no correlation. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, really, I think what you've just revealed to me is that despite all of my efforts to be um, nuanced and, and anti-sensational and whatever, um, when it came to that, when it comes to that topic, I think that I was, um, I had a different impression of what it was about because what you just described actually makes sense. Um, that people would be, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the people would be against the, um, the, the ridiculous nuanced rules, like no motorboat, but rowboat is finer or can't play catch in your yard. Like all of those are, are good examples of, of it being unreasonable uh, and, and worthy of, of challenging. Uh, and the reason I say that is because this is something that I had actually, I don't think I've talked about it on the pod before, but I had thought about sharing my thoughts, but I'm really glad that I waited until I talked to you, even though I had no idea we were going to talk about this because from, from my position where, you know, in Missouri, not in Michigan, right away from it. So just seeing right. the headlines and to be clear, I could probably get better information. I'm not spending hours researching it. So in fairness or discrediting me, right. Um, <laughs> but the way it looks is that it, to me, it looked like that, that the, the entire situation of the virus is being framed in this very black and white way where we can either stay home and the economy suffers, but people won't get sick as much, right? Or at least not as fast, right? So we'll reduce suffering. Or maybe not as soon, but they will anyhow. Sure. Because it's going to come back. But we're, we're, we're reducing the, the pain and suffering of it as much as possible by staying at home. However, right. the economy is going to suffer. Or, or we can have everyone go to work and the economy doesn't suffer, but more people will get sick. However, the reason that I think that... that I, I don't like that framing because I don't think that that's the actual framing. Like really it's if we stay home, we reduce the suffering, the economy suffers. If we all go out in mass, yes, more people are going to get sick. And if enough people get sick, the economy is still going to take the same hit because a people aren't going to go out and spend because they don't want right. to be around it. And B, if it's actually significant enough that it affects the workforce, you just aren't going to have people. So the economy still takes the hit either way. And so I guess my point is that, like, I thought that it was kind of a misframing of it because the explanation I just gave is how I see it, where it's like, yeah, the reason yeah. staying home is to reduce needless suffering because the economy's right either way because right. the virus is real. However, what you've just described is that that wasn't the position of these protesters. It's not that they're that. Well, you know, you know oh. what happens. What happens is, uh, speaking of nuance, the 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 news media gives a nuanced reporting of the topic, depending on what their point of view is. Mm -hmm. And you are not getting the best representative uh, on the side of the protesters if the media is not on the side of the protesters. Now, the level you're talking about this on is the level that it's mostly discussed on. It's mostly a black or white, you either go out or you don't go out. If you go out, you have all these problems. If you stay in, you don't have the problems. Well, there's a lot of, lot of, gray between that black and white. There's a lot of things you can do. I remember when we could, couldn't buy gas on Sunday because of gas rationing. You could say everybody A through B can grocery shop on these two days a week. Everybody, 
you know, you can sort people out and say, you know, these things on these days, this is how we're going to sort it. So there's ways to do it. And I'm not sure that it isn't smart to try and kind of settle this thing down by isolating people. We had the state um, senator from Michigan who did a address online and I listened to it and he got to ask questions and he ran out of time, but you could leave your question. And my question for him was, I don't get it. How do we get rid of this thing? Because it seems to me there's only three ways out of it. You either get it and survive it and you're okay, or you don't get it at all, or uh, you get it and you die. And the only way to go around that is to get a um, some kind of uh, like a vaccine. A vaccine. Sorry, I couldn't come up with vaccine. A vaccine. But they aren't going to give a vaccine to 300 million people without testing because it's going to test different on different people in different circumstances with different chemistries. And so that's going to take months, which means as soon as we go back outside, we're back kind of to square one, you know. Mm -hmm. But my argument is on a different level about what you're doing to society when you're implementing extreme rules. Because then it's kind of a take it or leave it. It's, you just got to stay in your house. You can't come outside. You'll be arrested, or come on outside and everybody gets sick. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's the answer. The answer is something in between. And and it's kind of like, okay, we're only going to open up this kind of stuff and this, and we're going to ask people to behave in a certain way. Now some people are going to get sick. That's the way there is to it. And a buddy of mine got sick, didn't even know he had it. Just felt like he didn't feel good for like two days. Had a stomach thing. That, yeah, and then two days later, he's fine. And he tested positive that he had had the thing. Here, I'll give you my response. And this is, you know what? I had somebody on uh, one of our social medias talking about uh, what a good idea was and how the governor was trying to stay, save the state. My response was this. I said, good intent, poor execution. Mm. I said, your broad brush description sounds fine. Requiring social distancing makes sense, but there's no direct correlation to many of the mandates, such as lawn care, mm-hmm. purchasing paint, fishing in a motorized boat. It's not removal of the freedom to do these as much as it is mandating limits of behavior with no specific consequence to the spread of the virus. Mm-hmm. This sets groups of citizens against one another. Um, instead of uniting with directives of clear purpose that are understood and accepted by most of the people. I think it's government overstep, and you don't want to do that. You have to have clear purpose, clear direction, and you have to have a, a nuanced, like you said, a nuanced approach to how you're going to deal with this. And you're going to say, okay, look at lawn care. I can't remember last time I was within 20 feet of anybody that showed up to mow my lawn. Mm-hmm. I'm not least bit lawn care. Have at it. Go mow the lawns. We want, and you're outside. That's good. Mom and dad, you're inside with your kid. Go out in your backyard and play catch. Doesn't hurt a person. Mm-hmm. Doesn't hurt anybody. Now, if we find that there's too much crowding at the grocery store, fine. Send up, set up days when only certain people can go to the grocery store. You can only buy groceries on these days and you got to show ID when you check out. It won't be enforced. It won't be adhered to a hundred percent, but that at least you got people that go, you know, my day to shop is after six o'clock at night on Tuesdays and Thursdays. You know what I mean? So you can seg- segregate those people. You can thin them out. You can thin out the herd. There's no reason people shouldn't be 
mowing the golf courses and people shouldn't be playing golf. You should go out and play tennis. You don't have to stand close. These things don't matter. Why would you not be allowed to sit in the fishing boat by yourself in the middle of a lake? Right, right. They pulled a guy off a paddle boat out in the ocean. And I have friends that are mad, that are mad because they know what the rules are. They're adhering to the rules. And damn it, you aren't adhering to the rules. This is why you don't set up rules that aren't acceptable by most people because not everybody would adhere to them. And those that do resent those that don't. And all of a sudden, you have civil unrest because you're trying to help. So good intent, lousy execution. You don't do it that way. Right. The, you would hope these people are smarter, but they aren't, apparently. Right. I mean, that's that's my point of view, that, that they should have had a nuanced response. And when you see the media interviewing people like, what the hell, we need money, so we got to be out with thousands of people. That's bullshit. That's, that's not the real problem. The real problem is these people don't accept the government overstep. Now, they might not be able to express it well, you know, but they know it's wrong. You're taking my freedoms away, and they don't all make sense. Right. And by the way, while you're taking them away, I can't pay my mortgage payment. If you want to help me, I think they ought to tell everybody in the country, no rent, no mortgage, one month. Let the banks take it. I think we helped the banks out. <laughs> Didn't we? Didn't we have a $700 billion bailout for the banks? I mean, yeah. I mean, they just print, yeah. you know, they just printed. Now, I don't, that's probably a lousy solution, but it seems good to me because they didn't have the money they lent me for my mortgage until I walked in. You know, they make up money. Right. They lend out more than they have. And the only, the way that money comes into existence is my promise to pay. Right. So they could say no mortgage payment, no rent payment for one month for everybody in the country. Yeah. I'd be good with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it works, uh, except that you get into situations where, um, again, you leave. You know, someone gets left out because you get into situations where you've got landlords that own property with privately held debt, where it's not a mortgage. You know, if you're a a, a, a real estate investor that has ten properties, you don't have ten bank mortgages, right? But I'm not. Have- I'm not saying it's going to be perfect for everybody. Sure, but I'm saying there's a whole lot of people in a whole lot of hurt situation that can't go to work. And some of them lost their jobs forever. Right. And it would help out a lot of people. That's kind of like saying building the wall at the border. doesn't, you shouldn't do it because it doesn't eliminate the problem. I think if you can, if you can help, you know, the situation, I think you should help the situation. Uh, I, so I'm with you on this. I am, I, I will. And we don't have to go down the road. I scared you with the border thing, didn't I? You didn't scare me. I just, I, I, <laughs> I do have to, I just because I have to be myself still, I do have to say that's, I, I personally think that that's pretty laughable. I mean, technically does a wall to slow someone down? Well, I guess, but my God, it's 2020. Like, and when that idea was floated, it was 2015. We've got, there are more there are more effective ways than building a fucking gun. Well, I know, I know, but I think we should use every way possible. I think we have a problem that we have seventy thousand homeless people in L.A. Yeah, we got so many homeless people they had to shut down the beaches right. because there was so much feces, urine, and crap coming out of the sewers from all the homeless people that we had to shut down the beach. We had to shut down the freaking ocean in L.A. for the summer because of the homeless. Let me tell you, everybody coming across the border is homeless. Mm. We should 
You think those people have homes here? They paid mortgages. They're just, they would just, ah, ah, this is how I get to my home. <laughs> I'm jumping the wall. <laughs> These are homeless people. We don't need to add the homeless people. I don't, I was in San Francisco recently. And let me tell you, dude, these people are not social distancing. The homeless <laughs> swear to God. No, oh, yeah. We, we, you know what? I, and I'm, I'm all for taking care of people and helping people out. But at some point you got to make it difficult to get more homeless people living on your streets. Sure. You know what? And you go, okay, where are the homeless people coming from? They're coming from people who had homes and people who didn't have homes. If we can stop any of those people from being homeless on our streets, we should do that. Sure. Yeah. I, I, again, I, I think those are valid points. Uh, I, I, I just, I, again, when specifically the wall, uh, I just have to die on that hill of, yeah, that's you want to go back to the wall. I took it to homeless, dude. I was trying to help you out. <laughs> no, I just, I, well, I, it's just that I'm not, I don't just, I don't dispute that there should be more help for homeless people. And I don't dispute that. Yeah. Well, you know what? That, I think the wall thing got blown out of proportion anyhow, because I think that was a big loud promise for, from uh, Trump and everybody loved to hate Trump and the media loved to hate Trump. And so there was a lot of that. And, you know, I think Barack Obama also was doing wall things that just weren't as publicized. So, you know, they're looking for a reason, you know, what you had is you had an outsider, you know, for decades, you know, a hundred years, we've had insiders with no outsider has come in and they didn't want an insider. The Republicans didn't want him. The Demo nobody wanted Trump in there. Mm -hmm. Nobody wanted a guy. And you know, the businesses that were paying, the politicians didn't want him either because he wasn't taking their money. The whole system didn't want him. And obviously the media didn't want him, mm -hmm. you know, and the big question was, well, Mr. Trump, if you don't win, will you accept the results of this election? And he hesitated and everybody went wild. Well, you know what? He got elected and nobody has accepted exactly what they were complaining about. Nobody accepted it. And the media went crazy because he found a way to communicate directly to people without having to go through their funnel, their coal and their filter. Every president going forward will be directly speaking to the people of the United States. Twitter is the new fireside chat. It's yeah. never, ever going away. Now the first year he's doing it because he is who he is and he talks the way he talks. Everybody's going, stop, stop. But you know what? He's not filtered. Dude, you, you hear what he wants to say. You know, and he talks off the top of his head. I've never seen a president come out and talk off the top of his head. It's always a written speech. They always have a speech writer. They're always, how do we phrase this? Which, what's our position going to be? What's the best way to state it? You don't get that with Trump. Trump is like, this is what I think. Now, yeah, he steps on himself, and he acts a fool, and he is who he is. But it's kind of it's kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I struggle because Trump um... – Trump, for me personally, um, strikes me as 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 an individual. So even outside yeah. of whatever policy things he wants, just the character right. portrays strikes me very much as just a, a bully, um, just a, a punk. Well, oh, he is. Bully. He is absolutely is. He's always been a bully. Even as a child, he was a bully. Right. And so, because of that, I, it's it's impossible for me to rationalize. <laughs> um, really having any respect for the guy whatsoever. Cause I think the whole thing is, is ridiculous. However, what I will say yeah. 
and this is something that I've I've talked a lot about on this podcast and that um, I think is not said often enough, is that he did not bring corruption or bring dishonesty or bring incompetence or bring bullying even to politics. It was right. all that already. There was right, right. a lot of veneer over it. And right. like it or don't, which I would have to label myself in the camp that doesn't. Uh, right, right. He... He doesn't have the same veneer. Now, I think the 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 nuance that I, I like to try and make there is that people act like because he's unfiltered, he's also honest. And that is where I disagree. Unfiltered. Well, you didn't hear me say that. You didn't. <laughs> I'm just I'm just clarifying that point because people will think that that is that those are, are synonymous, that unfiltered means unfiltered truth, and that is not accurate. However, it's not reasonable to say that. Well, because he's lying and doesn't care if I know, and previous presidents, like Obama even, who I was a fan of, but Obama would lie and hide it, that that's better in some way, because it's not. Yeah. To, to me, it really, I think that if anything, what Trump has done is, is what I just said, stripped away the veneer of politics. And I don't know, I don't know where it's going to go from here, and I don't know how people are going to respond Right. I hope it's not to continue leaning more into that, but um... see it. It. I'll tell you what. It doesn't bother me, and the only reason it doesn't bother me is because I spent thirty years in commercial construction, and uh, I had a, a a pretty successful business that was known from coast to coast in commercial construction, and I dealt with contractors all the time. My life, my career, my living, I made dealing with commercial contractors and also um, distributors and salespeople and everybody, general contractors, subs, electrical contractors, all these people. And let me tell you, the people that run those organizations are all bullies. They're all assholes to some degree. You don't get to the top without stepping on people. You don't get to the top without pounding your chest and telling people how good you, you are and how good you're going to be and how great things are going to be. This is not unusual. This is who these people are. And it's the people today. And, you know, I'm in Michigan. I'm doing business in Detroit and Flint, Michigan. Can you imagine in New York City with the crime and corruption, how big of an asshole or a bully or a tough guy or a pushy guy or a mean guy or a determined person you have to be to get anything done in New York City, for you to even go to a show and actually participate in the show, you have to hire the union people to set your stuff up. There are just rules on the rules and payoffs and things that happen in commercial construction, whether you like it or not. That's the nature of the beast. So I spent my lifetime dealing with people like Trump and Trump deals with people like he deals with people in construction. And that is you don't have to like them to do business with them. If I sit down with the owner of Electrical Wholesale House, it's a total asshole who I cannot stand, I'm going to say very nice things about him to people around him in his presence. I'm going to compliment him. Doesn't mean I like him. It means I got to get along with him. Right. And when Trump does this, everybody is self-righteous going, hold it. The Putin's a bad guy, so you should never say anything nice about him. Well, if you don't, you're not going to get anything done. You can be high and mighty and never accomplish anything, or you can try to find 
some level you can get along with people on so you can establish a rapport so you can make an arrangement also you have to understand like with china you got to be able to compliment them on the good th things and criticize them on the bad things. And when you're complimenting them, it doesn't mean you like the bad things or don't know the bad things are there. Good God, anybody that has done business at all knows you walk in and talk to people and try to put a deal together that's a win-win deal for you and them. You're not trying to screw people. You're trying to make everybody win as much as possible. But you don't do that by telling them what an asshole they are. You, you know, you say, you know, I think you're really smart. I think you got a good country. I think you're doing the best. That's what you do. And people, this seems to be lost on people. People are living in some utopia where if you don't like somebody, you should never do business with them or never say anything good about them. Well, that's just dumb. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's able to accomplish things because he's an asshole and he's used to being an asshole. At some point, you hire a bouncer to stand at the front door and you don't hire him because he has good grammar. You don't hire him because he says the politically correct thing all the time. You hire him for what he can get done. And most people that have been in the establishment, whether it's the media or politics, are looking for reasons to dethrone him or why he shouldn't be in that position to put themselves in a better position or their party in a better position. And there's lots of things you can point at if you're looking at traditional politicians who stand up there and are the righteous moral leader of the country in the world, the shining star. Trump isn't that guy. Trump's a get it done guy, kind of guy. I mean, I think it's funny that people think he's sexist when the biggest project he ever did in New York city, the general contractor of that project was a woman. How, how, how much do you have to respect a woman or women in general to think you are tough enough, powerful enough, smart enough to build the biggest building I've ever built in New York City. My biggest, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. And they take things out of context. So I really don't have a problem with him being who he is. I'm more of a, what are you going to get accomplished? I, I want to know what you're going to get accomplished for poor people, people in need, people who are sick. If you're helping those people, I'm all for it. But if you're just running around Washington, like many people do, and you're just trying to figure out how you can be more powerful or shut down other people, I have no respect for you. You know, the weird thing about capitalism is, you know, government never shut down anything they started. No organization, no nothing they ever started has ever shut down except two things. The Vietnam draft shut down. And also they had a savings program after World War One That shut down. They start these programs. They hire hundreds and thousands of people, and they go on forever. In business, we get to vote every day. I don't like the way you're running your store. I'm going to go vote by buying stuff at another store, and businesses go out of business. And most businesses go out of business in 5 to 20 years. A lot of them go down in the first year, but even successful business only lasts five to 20 years, and then they don't respond to what the market needs, so they're out of business. That's the wonderful thing about capitalism. You have to be the best value in what you're doing or you're going out of business. Somebody's going to learn how to do it better, and I really like and respect that. Of course, I, I owned a business. I was I was in that world. So I, you know, I, I totally understand if you're looking for things to object about Trump, you're going to find him. 
Is he boastful? Yeah. Does he say things that are bullshit? Yeah. Is he self-promoting? Absolutely. This is who he is. But who the hell else has enough money to not borrow any money and run for president of the United States? And once he gets there, can get some things done. I think, you know what, if you're on the wrong end of a trade agreement with another country, I think the tariffs is a great idea. If you're on the right end of it, tariffs suck. I mean, that's why the, that's why they can't do anything in tariffs because they're dependent on us purchasing, bringing stuff in. So it's a great strategy. And he he's a negotiator. Every commercial contract negotiates, and you always start at the extreme position. I don't know how people don't know this, that he comes out and he says, this is going to be my position. Then he softens it. Well, that's how you negotiate. And then people say, see, he didn't stay with that. Well, well no shit. He was negotiating. I mean, I, I just don't understand how people don't understand who he is. I get it. You don't like him. I get it. You think he's crass. I, you know, he's old. But I tell you what, I don't know anybody that was successful in construction that wasn't pretty damn smart and pretty damn driven. It takes some to be, you know, even where I live or you live. But if you're successful in construction in New York City, you're you're got to be really smart, and you also have to be really driven, and you off you also have to be really shrewd, and you also have to be able to make friends. I bet he, I bet he's personally very charming, because you don't get you don't get there without all that stuff. There's some things you need to get there, and I think the fact that. We actually had the opportunity to have someone like him president one time in my life. It's kind of a cool thing. Well, so that's what I've actually been been thinking about as you've been explaining these thoughts is that – so you're someone who is a protester in um, the 60s and 70s, anti-establishment, anti-government overreach. I still am, yeah. Sure. And, well, and that's my point. Yeah, not that you've changed. Yeah, I didn't mean that you've, you've forsaken that. I, what I meant was yeah. – so for for um, this is not fair because I'm going to say people like me, but that that's no I, no I don't I care don't, it's I'm, fine I'm good dude no no I don't mean that you're going to be offended I'm just trying to oh. think of how to explain it. no no I, well I mean should I know that you're not an offended person so, okay and I appreciate you being this candid with me uh, on these thoughts because this is stuff that people don't like to talk about because it's uncomfortable frankly I haven't talked about it that much on the show because it's uncomfortable. So, but anyway, yeah, well, these are all my positions, so you can't be blamed for it. So that's kind of a good thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can talk to Ted at Ted talks too much. <laughs> <laughs> Send your hate mail. <laughs> well, no, but, but so, you know, for, for people who are more left leaning, I would say like myself, we think more than me, you mean? Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. We think of well, no, maybe because I think I'm left leaning. I would agree. I would agree. I, I would agree, and, and so that's what's what's interesting is that people who identify themselves as liberal or progressive type people view, and again, I'm speculating to some extent, but I, my understanding at least is is view, um, conservatism and republic the Republican platform and and certainly Trump as as the government as the establishment as the the controlling mechanism and that's not just true of trump that was true with 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 bush as well right but yet you who again a genuine protester and someone who is actually interested in civil justice and those sorts of things yeah you see trump as the candidate that represents that most accurately and and again, I'm not I'm not challenging that as like that's stupid or something. I don't mean that. I just yeah. You see Trump as the 
as the 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 non-government play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely is. Huh. It'd be hard to argue that he's not a non-government person. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't in government. Right. And yeah, and and the people he brought in are people he trusts that are not necessarily government people. You know, he's and he's, if he didn't like what they're doing, he fired them. He did a lot of that. Hmm. Yeah, I I absolutely. I you know what? Hmm. The problem is that the the term liberal has changed. That you know, I I did public speaking on campus for uh, for gay rights was when I was in college. I protested for civil rights. I was out in the streets in '68. I did these things, and I still believe that was the right thing to do, and I would do it again. You know, and um, I even trying to live in a way that that I think reflects the fact that I'm liberal, but I'm also an individual, and we're all not put into a little box. I'm an atheist. I don't think that goes with conservatism. Right. You know, and maybe, maybe it does. I, I don't know, but I don't think so. I, yeah, I, here's an example. I'm for the underdog. And I think most liberal liberals think they're for the underdog. That's me. And if you're going to saying what I was trying to say, yeah, right, right, right. And, and they're, you know, they're built on heart and they're going to, they really care about people and that sort of thing. Well, I'll give you a, an example where I, I think that the the other party is a little bit more caring. I believe in school vouchers. I believe that if you are a student and you're getting government funding for your education, which all students do, uh, that you should be able to go to the school of your choice. You shouldn't be locked into the lousy urban school just because your parents can't afford to live in a better neighborhood. And if there's a private school, whether it's parochial and you happen to be Catholic, or if it's just a charter school that has higher graduates into college and your parents want to send you there and they they feel like you can keep up with it and you're willing to, you know, put your nose to the grindstone and, and go there and do the extra work, walk the extra mile, whatever it is to go to that school, you should be able to take your dollars that they're no longer going to give to the public school because you weren't there to raise your hand on the day they they count. You can take that in the state of Michigan. I think it used to be, well, I don't know, $8,000 and take that money and put that towards your tuition at the parochial or, or private school. Well, that's not what the Democrats think. The Democrats are all about the teachers union, which is the most powerful union in Washington. But the teachers see the school, which is part of the government, as a system that supports them, that they're there forever. Students come and go. This is their career, their job. But I think the reason we have schools is for the benefit of children, not the benefit of the teachers. I don't give a hoot about the teachers. And quite frankly, a lot of the teachers are going away. At some point, we're going to figure out that we don't need 10,000 third grade teachers in the state of Michigan teaching the same class on English when we can do it online with a simple program where the kids check out and check, check in, check out and get their grade that way. We need to have the kids get together here and there. But teachers are going to go away to some degree, and there will be some things where we have to get together. But I think if you give a kid, a poor kid, and I don't care if he's black or white, uh, the opportunity to go to a better school by saying, you know what, money is not going to hold you back because the government's got you covered. Through elementary school, through junior high and high school, the government's got you covered. You take your dollars, you go where you want to go. If you can manage it, Get there. Get your education. 
A lot of them won't. A lot of them will go and they won't make it. A lot of them will say, well, I can't because it's too far to go and I can't get a ride. Well, you know what? Other kids at those schools will give you a ride. There's ways to do it. If you really, really, really want to do it, you'll do it. And I, I don't understand why the conservative party is the one who believes in doing what's best for the children and the liberal party that's supposed to be built on heart is all for having this teachers union where in New York state, you can't even fire them. They, if they don't teach, you put them in a school, they punch in and sit there and play on their computer all day long. And you still got to pay them because they have tenure and you can't fire them. I'm not about that. I don't care about the damn teachers. You know, all our jobs are in jeopardy. It's the postman's job is in jeopardy. At some point we're going to figure out it doesn't make sense to have a little car or a guy going up to every house in the country six days a week. Not necessary. It's going away. Teachers are going away. And on the way, we should do what's best for the kids. And the kids that are left out are the poor kids who are suffering in these inner city schools that have lousy teachers, that have lousy curricula, that have lousy um, administrators, that have lousy equipment, that are the teachers are spending their time disciplining the top 20% that have bad behavior instead of teaching the kids. So I think if you look at who is really after social justice, sometimes it may not be the party you think it is. It's definitely interesting to hear this because I I don't actually know closely at least um, that many conservative people. I do know some conservative people. And I know people, lots of people who voted for Trump being in, in Missouri, but most of them don't have um, really nuanced positions. And I don't mean and I don't mean that to insult them at all. They, they just you know they voted with whatever reasoning they wanted to vote with, which is their right to do. And I, you know, I'm still friends right. with people who voted for Trump. So I didn't chat. I, I didn't, I wasn't one of those people. Um, See, but, am I conservative? Are you saying I'm conservative? Um, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I mean, what do you think? Do you, you don't think you're conservative despite being a Trump voter? I think, well, I, Here's did actually I say I voted, did I say I voted for Trump? Here's you I know don't what? Think I said that. Yeah, that's fair. And you know what? Here's <laughs> actually here's actually the thing, the, All right. the real truth that I keep trying to come to, not in this conversation, but in in large is, right? It's stupid to try and label someone as one it thing is. that means everything. Yeah, it, it is. What it you've is. just described, which is why I appreciate you talking about it, and I don't mean that in some condescending, flattering, like, well, I appreciate you sharing your views, even though I think they're wrong. Like, I really mean. I really do appreciate it because everything is painted in all these broad brushes all the time. Right. Exactly. It, it, exactly. It's confusing because they're not real because it's not really how people think about things. And it's not right. really the, the views that people hold. And yes, you get extremists on either side that are, that are just completely. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. not the majority of yeah. people. Um, no, but they're loud. 
So, you know what? I mean, to answer your question, do I think you're conservative? I guess the answer is no, because I think ultimately it's stupid to try and label someone as either. And the point that you've just made is that, which is a point I constantly come back to, there's fucking nuance in everything, right? Yeah, so there is. Yeah. It's, it's not just that the liberals are the bleeding hearts, and it's not just that conservatives are the, I don't know, wealth generators or something, you know, the business only. Like, there's there's elements of both in both which is important for people to understand because something that you said much earlier um, that is very true and a lesson that I really had to, to, to swallow after Trump won is it doesn't work to silence people and it doesn't work to tell people shut the fuck up and go away. That's you know, not the liberal position right now. Or that's not the, hold it. I'm wrong. That's not the far left position. Oh yeah. And I think, I think there's a, there's a separation. Oh, absolutely. There's the far left and there's the liberals, but the far left is, is very loud. So as critical as I, as it may seem like I am of Trump, which I am incredibly critical of him. I have, I've been more offended in the last four years by the far left because it's turned into the, I mean, talk about sensationalism. My God everything is is a is something to to tweet about right and it's it's just all ridiculous i mean like one of the things that drove me insane and i, I probably only know about it because it affected two things that i care about and that's indoor yeah. basketball and video games and it was <laughs> the, the hong kong protests last year that were going on and uh blizzard which is a company that makes video games yeah. They penalized one of their professional players uh, pretty harshly because he used he won a tournament and he used his opportunity when he was speaking after he won to condemn China and to support the protesters. Right. Blizzard said that's not what this event's about. And they 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 took I think they took his title away from him or something that he oh. which was heavy handed and too far. Yeah. However, however. Uh, or in addition to, I should say, the NBA, right? They had that whole thing where they had players over there and then the general manager of the Houston Rockets tweeted out that he would, supported the protesters. And and everyone, and the NBA didn't immediately jump to his defense. The NBA was like, eh, we've got a lot of interests over there. This is kind of a... And so they were very political about how they handled it. Yeah. So what the response to that was, was people that, well, I'll just say on the far left, despite just saying that I don't want to label people, <laughs> um is that all these people went up in arms on Twitter and other social media about how, you know, these Hong, Hong Kong is a, a terrible situation and Blizzard is a horrible company for not giving that guy the right to, to support the protesters and the NBA is horrible and, and all this shit. And it's like, none of you actually fucking care, though. Like, you're all just tweeting it and saying it because it's easy. Right. But none of you are actually like, who is actually helping anyone in Hong Kong? That's tweeting this stuff because if you're right. not actually taking action and you're just talking about it, then it's fucking bullshit. And that yeah. is that is that's just one example, but it has become so pervasive where there's this outrage culture that that I used to think I was in line with because I hate bullies, right? Like I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I, I didn't do I didn't rights stuff, right? Like when someone yeah. is being someone is a bigot, fuck that. Like that's wrong. Yeah, that's right. However, and so for a long time, it was like, hey, if someone says they're being discriminated against, they probably are because we've got a pretty long history of that. And that yeah. still is true. Unfortunately, the pendulum has swung so far that now everything is a big deal and everything is discrimination. I mean, 
I, I'm just ranting right now. I realize, but no, 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 no. Yeah, I understand because there's a lot of people that try to validate their position by tweeting things or saying things, making statements. There's nothing behind it other than, aren't I a good guy? That's really what they're saying. It's virtue. Don't you like me? Yeah. Yeah. And it really doesn't, it doesn't mean anything because they aren't going to do anything. And, but you know, I don't know how you're going to get rid of that because social media is not going away. I do think there is a separation between what you do when you're representing a company uh, like the Kaepernick thing mm-hmm. and what you do when you're on your own and tweeting out of your basement on your own personal account. And I think people are entitled to have their opinions and I think people are entitled to express their opinions. However, when you're on the dime, when I'm paying you, you're representing me and my company. And I'd have to say, if I'm putting on a large tournament and I'm paying a whole bunch of money and I don't want my company to be involved in politics I might ask you not to speak on politics at my event. When you go home, now that everybody knows you and follows you, say everything you want. So I think there's a there has to be a separation between what your responsibilities are when you're representing a company or you are getting notoriety because of your relationship with a company winning a contest or whatever it is and what you say on your own time. Um, I think that I think there's a probably a what should be a professional respect that if I'm working for you and I'm doing this, I probably shouldn't do this on your time and your dime. You know, I, I don't special like it when I see people at the Oscars that are getting up and giving political speeches because I'm going, you're a freaking actor. What have you ever done and how would you know? Yeah, but that's you know, watching the Oscars. Fuck that. Watch the Oscars since I was a child. Like, yeah. Well, but in any case, I, I was trying to cite an example where people were winning an award and then speaking out politically. And I think it's, I think it's inappropriate uh, to do it in those forums, but People are virtue signaling, really. They're saying, and in Hollywood, it's easy to do because you're standing in front of 3,000, you know, hard left-leaning people and you say something, they're going to love you. And, you know, they're going to generate good press about you. And, you know, so it's it's a win-win for you. And, you know, I've, you know, I got a podcast organization. We're going to have the top podcasters on. By the way, you just won. What do you have to say, Walker? You know, I mean, you can make up your own wards. So in, in, in all the awards are for is just to promote your industry. I mean, that's really what they're for, to get more people out to the movies or whatever. That's what it's about. Right. You know? And that's why they, they keep on having it. But that's fine. But I do think there's – I think there's – it's good to have a social position. I think of myself as a fiscal business conservative because I own a business. It's hard to be not for low taxes, low government involvement in business – when you've run a business, but I also think of myself as being socially very liberal, but my oldest daughter and her husband think I'm just terribly conservative because I'm not outraged that Trump said something about you can grab him by the pussy. And I told my daughter, I said, I've probably said that myself. You know, I've probably been in a locker room in junior high when I was first learning about sex. And I said, I can't believe it. Karen, let me grab her tit. And then somebody came out and said, hey, 
Jared, you know, Ted says it's okay to grab girls' tits. Yeah, but you know, the the the. So I don't know. I don't. I don't mean to argue with you or engage. No, 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 no. Please do. I'd love to have this argument. The the the, the reason that that's so absurd is because the, the that guy represents the party who flipped shit when the the previous president didn't have a flag on his fucking a flag pin on his lapel. So you're going to tell me that we no, 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 that's not his standard. He is, he is who he is. He is, he's not responsible for what Abraham Lincoln did or anybody else. The fact that they went back in history and found somebody that said, by the way, one time he said, he said the same thing that LeBron James would tell you or any NBA player would tell you, because when they walk out the door, there is no limit to the number of girls that are standing out there waiting to do sexual favors to get in with these guys. There's a group of people right. that are groupies that, and it's, it's, and it's not just athletes. You know, if you are, right. if you're alpha, alpha male, you make, if you were a millionaire, if you are a billionaire, believe me, these things happen. Now, the fact that you go, I can't believe these things are happening. And you tell somebody like, can you believe it? They let you do this. The fact that you would express this to somebody means you think it's kind of shocking. You think it's interesting. You think it's out of the social norm. And because you told that to somebody, you're a bad guy? No, no. What I'm saying, though, I'm not, I'm not disputing any of that. What I'm simply saying is that I think the reason that it was so hard to understand how it was acceptable is, again, he represents a group of people who claimed that it was outrageous that another president didn't have a certain pin on his lapel because we care so much about the, the, the decency and the dignity of the presidency that how dare you disgrace it by wearing a tan jacket or how dare you disgrace it by having a flag lapel. Meanwhile, four years later, the guy who throws all of that out the window is great. He's the candidate now. And it's like, eh, this just doesn't jive with everything that this party has been about when they weren't the ones in power, which to be clear. Yeah. I don't, I think you're, I think you're go ahead. Forgive me, but I think you're trying to say because you complained about something that was trivial, we get to complain about things that are trivial. I think that's the argument you're giving. No, what I'm saying. and, and, And this is what I was getting ready to say also though, is that it's not unique to one party, which is, the thing that I keep trying to bring everything back to is that all of the nonsense, my point is that it's incredibly hypocritical. However, I don't think that hypocrisy belongs to the right exclusively. Right. Like I get, well, hold on. are we talking about the people that complained about it? Or are we talking about what Trump said? Are we talking about the media that went after him for it? Or are we talking about what he said? Are we talking about Trump and whether this behavior was reasonable, understandable, um, or are we talking about whether the response to it was appropriate? Well, that's what, I mean, you'd brought up that you couldn't believe that people didn't think that it was wrong or that you didn't think it was that big of a deal that he said something like that. Right. I don't. And so, right. and so my point is that the very people who are supporters of him, which at least at the time, which I don't know, you're, let's say, let's say me, go okay. ahead. That, 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 at the time, you think I said something about a pin? No. We're talking about me, dude. <laughs> no, no, what I'm saying. You're talking about supporters of him. I'm saying that the people who, who act like, hey, 
shoulder shrug, no big deal. It's just who he is. It's just his character are the same people who threw a fucking fit, not decades ago, not a hundred years ago, literally within the last four years before he was elected about way more trivial shit than that. So it's not that we get the right to complain or, and again, I don't like saying we, cause, <laughs> but whatever that people don't get the right to complain about or should get the right to complain because other people complained about Obama having ridiculous transgressions. It's that it seems really disingenuous for people to be like, meh, no big deal. When that was not the attitude that we had when it wasn't your guy. I think we're arguing about two different things. Okay. You're making a general statement that the people that did this are now doing that. And I can't speak for the people. I can speak for me. And I had no problem with pins. So you're making, you're making a statement that right. the general group of people said one thing. And now that same group of people are being disingenuous or not being consistent by having taken another position. Well, you're talking to one of the people that said, I didn't have a problem with it, but I also didn't have a problem with pins. Yeah. If you want to come up with some way that I'm being disingenuous, I, sure. I'm good with that. But you got to come up with some position that isn't consistent. No, that's that, it, it's fair. It's fair. Um, I, again, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm technically talking out, I'm, I'm a damn politician. I'm talking out both sides of my mouth, right? I'm on well, the no, I like to hear it. Well, I'm saying on one hand that we shouldn't label people. And then the, the, the problem that I pose is absolutely one that requires labeling of an entire, you know, huge segment. The of whole people. group. Yeah. Right. And everybody said so, this and now everybody says that. And right. Right. But so that's long ago. You're saying we're all nuanced. So yeah, no. And I agree. Make up your mind. <laughs> I'm good with either one. <laughs> I, I, I ultimately fall on the side that I think that everyone is, is nuanced. Um, and I will, I will, I will concede that. Um, yeah that it's, it, it's not fair to paint everyone with the, the broad brush like that. Well, if you give me another reason why he shouldn't have said that back to his buddies, I would, I would accept that reason. But I know, and like I told my daughter, I have said the same sort of thing. I've been with my buddies going, you know, talking about a girl that was probably of ill repute that I met at some time, sharing stories with my buddies. Dude, I don't know why this happened. You know what she did? I mean, have you not done that? Has not every man in the world at some point done that? And so what? And you're going to bring this out and say, oh, by the way, this is why you shouldn't like your president, because at one time he said something that every other man in the world has said in confidence when he's talking to his buddies about girls that were wild and loose. So I don't have a problem. I think people are just looking for ways to shoot him down. I think there's a lot of legitimate ways to shoot him down. But I, I think saying that, that no. you know, groupies allow you to do things that normal women don't allow you to do is not one of them. Yeah, I think that um, I think it goes back to what I was trying to what I had said a while ago, which is that the so the reason that that should sink him. Right. Is because that's the kind of stuff that sunk politicians the whole time. I mean, Howard what was Howard Dean, maybe I think that's his name in 2004. Yeah. Like, but the guy that went, Pah, right? And then he was out. Like, he was winning primaries, and then he did a stupid noise and a stupid face, and that was the end. Like, tiny little gaffes have sunk polit politicians. Right, you're right, you're right. And why don't they sink Trump? What What's your thought on that? I, I, I don't know. However, I will say that I, I, 
I think that that speaks to the veneer thing that I was talking about, where the truth is, is that everyone says things that not everyone is going to, to, to agree with or, or not even agree with think things that are crass, right? Socially inappropriate. Yeah. I know I do stand up comedy, dude. I do a lot of dick jokes. So I, I totally get that. I heard you, uh, too, Mike. Um, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it's not even funny. It's just for my entertainment alone. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it's stupid to think that it's dumb that those kinds of things sunk people before. So arguing that it should sink him is arguing in support of the system that was bullshit to begin with. It was thinking yeah. dumb stuff. Well, so who was the, who was the liberal that... Uh, uh, the comedian that was on Saturday Night Live, and he got a picture of himself in an airplane pretending he was going to grab the breast of a woman that was asleep. Al Franken. Yeah, that was bullshit. It was a joke. Right. He never touched her. Right. He, and the reason, the thing that made it funny is in comedy, if it's socially inappropriate, but a thought that goes through your head and you share it, if you share socially inappropriate thoughts, that's stand-up comedy. Right. You know? I'm sitting in church thinking about the blue-haired lady in front of me, and I'm so bored I want to take her hair and bang her head against the pew. I really was thinking that. Shouldn't say it. Shouldn't do it. And I know that. And that's all he did. And the reason it was funny is because it was inappropriate. Now, what he should have done with that picture is showed it to her first, and I don't know if he did or not. He shouldn't have put it up online where everybody could see it without her acknowledging it was okay to do it. Mm Because if he did that, that was impolite. That was rude. That was not nice. But that doesn't mean you take him out of office. Now, I totally disagree with everything he said. I, he was so far left that I, I had no common ground with him. But I will fight for the fact that that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. The dude's a comedian. He's a high-level professional comedian, made a joke. Did he put it out in the wrong way? Maybe. Was a joke out of line? It's not one that I wouldn't have done. I'd do that if somebody takes a picture of me and somebody's sleeping in the background, like, oh, I'm going to grab her. Right. But I'd show it to her because I'm polite. You know, so was he rude? Are you no longer a senator because you did something rude? Who's setting these standards, dude? I want somebody to get something done. Hmm. Well, I, like, I, like I've said several times, I, um, well, don't say it again then, dude. I'm, no, I've got to. I've got to. You know, it's a walk show, man. All your, they've already heard it several times. They know. <laughs> they've, they've all shut it off by this. <laughs> like, I know. It's like, just... why are we listening to this shit? <laughs> this is only for our entertainment. No. It, I had it, fun. Nobody it really, liked it, but I had fun. It really is. Um, it really is meaningful to hear. To ha- These are the conversations that don't happen. Like, this is the conversation I've been wanting to have for so long, and I didn't think it was the conversation you and I were going to have. Like, I didn't think we were going to talk about Trump at all when, when we scheduled this. I know. Recording. I feel like we're kind of going steady now, dude. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. I'm feeling pretty close. But um, <laughs> but it's, it's because everything gets painted in these brushes, and you don't get to hear the nuance, and you don't get to hear – Someone who supports Trump also say, while I don't like Al Franken, I think it's wrong that Al Franken lost his position based on the reasons that he did. 
you don't hear those conversations. Yeah, but aren't all your positions with everybody nuanced? I mean, don't you love your mother for something and kind of hate her for something else? Yeah, no, that's my point. And all that's your friends, point. there's good in all your friends, and there's a couple little despicable things in some. Sometimes the despicable gets so big, you go, dude, I can't hang out with you anymore. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. But all your relationships are nuanced. And I think the problem is, or one of the problems is that people nowadays have a tendency to see you slip off one little rung where they disagree with you. And not only are you somebody they now dislike and dislike everything about, but there's no value in you. And we're going to label you racist, bigot, or whatever the worst word is Mm -hmm. and put you into that box. And I don't think, I don't think there's any, intelligence or value to that whatsoever. I think that's just a really weird way of looking at people. You know, maybe because I'm old, you know, I'm in my sixties. You're only going to live. My friends are dying off. One third of the people I graduate high school with are dead. I only have so many more years. Mm -hmm. I can't spend my life hating on people. Now I do cut out people that are negative. If you've got a lot of negative things that you're saying about other people, I'm like, and I don't need that much negative in my life. Mm -hmm. But just because we disagree on things, I think that's a valuable relationship. That's somebody who can kind of show you another way of looking at things because there's no right and wrong. There's really no truth and no untruth. If you think about the story of uh, the little boy who cried wolf, you know that story? Of course, yeah. Yeah, and I think most people know that. It Well... <sighs> There's a great truth in that story mm-hmm. that if you go out and you say things that are not true over and over and over, people stop believing you. But you know, I'll tell you what the real truth is. There was no little boy. There was no wolf. There was no sheep. There was no village. It's a lie. It never happened. It is not true. My point is there's truth in things that are not true. You know, you don't have to believe the Bible verbatim because I don't to understand there's great truth in it. And even in things that people say, you don't have to agree, you know, that, that with everything they say, you have to kind of parcel things out and go, what truth is there in that? What is there in that that, that is of value to me or adds to me mm-hmm. or broadens me or makes me understand if nothing else, at least understand the perspective of somebody else. You know, when I look at green, I don't see the same green you see. My eyes actually process it a little bit different. My greens are a little bit different than your greens. I'm glad if you have the opportunity to share somehow your greens with me, you know, and I think you got to be that way about politics, about social things, about, about life in general. You know, you have when we were at PodFest, I had a two-hour conversation with a guy, and his podcast was on on the Bible. And he really, truly believed all that stuff happened. And I, I said, I think it's all just bullshit. I think, you know, we pass on things of value through stories in religion. And the simplest way to get people to remember it is to make it into a story. And then value it, tell them it's true. It is true, but it's not true. There's no frickin' arc. You know? 
Right. Those, yeah. those animals were carnivores. If you take on six tigers, you got to take on, if you take on two tigers, you got to take on six more to feed them. And then when you get off the ark, what are they going to eat? I mean, it, it didn't happen. It's impossible that that happened, but there's great truth in the story. It's not true. That's why I laugh about people saying, oh, that's your truth or that's fake news and the real truth and there's only one truth. That's bullshit. In the exact same story, there's more than one truth. There's things that are untrue and there's things that are true. And you just have to be able to determine what truth can I find in this for me? Where does it resonate with me? What does it mean to me? And there's great meaning. Any story that lasts, whether it's a Bible story or a Disney story, any story that lasts a long time has some truth to it. And that's why we value this. That's how we pass on our understandings of life. That's how we pass on our culture. That's that's why those things are important. Yeah, I actually heard one time a guy who's an, uh, an evolutionary biologist is what he his title is, I guess. But he said that it, looking at religion purely from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, the only things that make it are things that are valuable, right? Like, right. And so, and this guy's not a religious person, or at least not advocating any specific religion, but he's like, you can't discount the value of these religions that have been around for thousands of years because oh, right. All right, right. they clearly add something, right? There's some value added. And he's not even getting into what that may or may not be, just simply that it wouldn't persist, nothing persists that long if there's not right. value to it, right? Right. So no, well, I, think- the interest, I think the interesting thing is the way it evolves is the behavior evolves first. First, the behavior evolves that every time the guys go out and they hunt for meat and bring it back to the camp, we divide it up. And now we divide it up this way because we have to set aside some for the gods and some for the elderly and some for the orphan children. This and then. The guys that hunt get the first take, or they. So first, the behavior comes, then it becomes a ritual or an understanding or a rule or the way, the right way for it to be done. Once that happens, then they develop a storyline about how this happens and why this happens, and this is how we pass on our culture and our our ways of thinking about things. So first it's the behavior, then it's the story, then the story lives on. And if you're going to pass on understandings of life or reasonable ways to live or rules that you value as in cultures for thousands of years, you have to do it in stories. Mm -hmm. And that's why the Quran and the Bible and these books are so important. And the problem is the nuanced understanding of those stories causes conflict because people take them too literal. Mm -hmm. And that's why you, that's, that's the biggest problem that we're trying to be multicultural and we can't because the nuanced understanding of our religion doesn't allow that. And the people that are shallow thinking are saying, allow people to be Muslims and practice all their cultural things in our country. And you say, well, there's a reason that our country is based on Christianity. I mean, there's a reason it's one nation under God. It's because that's where it all goes back to, that understanding. And they're talking about this is our culture, and this is what we revert to. See, long ago and far away, there was a guy, and he was the head of the tribe. And he stood up front and said, these are my rules, and you're going to live by them. Well, you know what? 
His name was Jake. Well, Johnny didn't like Jake's rules, so Johnny killed Jake. Johnny stood up and said, these are my rules now, and we're all going to live by these rules. Well, then somebody killed him, and all of a sudden, Bob's running the place going, Bob, going, I don't want to be killed. I don't have any rules. So here, I brought in Ivan here, and Ivan was talking to God the other day, and he decided that these are God's rules. And Ivan's going, they ain't my rules. They're God's rules. They came from God. That's why in all cultures, you see the guy who's running the state stand next to a religious guy he's referring to for guidance. Because all communities are based on some kind of religion or underlying culture based on a religion or cultural beliefs. Mm. This come from a guy who doesn't believe in God. Isn't that good? Right. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh. Nice story. Oh. A lot of truth in it, but it's not true. Well, um, for a conversation that I thought was going to be comedy really about stand-up comedy, uh, <laughs> instead we've had. Where's a the punchline? Right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'll do no. better next time. No, no, no! Don't apologize. That's not. That wasn't my point at all. Um, and instead, for more of the shit, go to TedTalksTooMuch.com. Ted talks too much. <laughs> yeah. No. I, well, I, I feel honestly, I, I feel bad for you because what's happened is. I've I've had some other recordings where I wasn't as um, comfortable as I wanted to be. Yeah. And, and so going into this, I was like, I'm just going to totally lean into having a real honest conversation. Yeah. Without, without any concern. And so then you just got the brunt of it, man. Like you just got, I just, you just got me unloading. No, good. no, no. This is fine with me. I shit. I like to talk, dude. I mean, honestly, uh, you give me a subject and I got a thought on it. Doesn't mean I'm right, but I got a thought. <laughs> uh, well, we are we are over two hours at this point, so I think we'll wrap it up. Um, TedTalksTooMuch.com. The podcast is Ted Talks Too Much. Anything else? that I know you said you've written a book. I know it was a while back, but is there anything else you'd like for people to know about? Uh, you know what? My book is Look Out, I'm Parenting Here, a survival guide for the single or busy parent. It talks about uh, being a single male and raising toddlers from the age of one and a half to six years old. It's sold for almost nothing. I think it's under 10 bucks, but it's a quick reference guide. So if you have little bitty babies, it might be worth 10 bucks to figure out how to get them to stay in bed or eat their food. Anyhow, uh, it's a it's not a read from beginning to end, but it's a quick reference book. But mm. really right now, my focus is on uh, my podcast, TED Talks Too Much. Um, uh, I'm also on Instagram. Actually, the best way to follow me is to go to Instagram because I have one-minute clips of my podcast on Instagram. And so you can clip through them really fast and see which uh, episode you want to listen to. But I, I usually interview stand-up comedians. And uh, I'm going to have a couple episodes. I might be going to the senior citizens home and uh, interviewing some senior citizens, which might be fun. Yeah, I'm going to do something on uh, the cre- three keys to success. I also just did a story on uh, my first trip to Chicago when I was a hippie, and I hitchhiked to Chicago with $5 in my pocket to see a girl who didn't know I was coming at United Airlines Stewardess School and ended up at an orgy. I think that might be an interesting for <laughs> <laughs> some people. Anything to get listeners. So anyhow, <laughs> Ted Talks Too Much on YouTube, Ted Talks Too Much on Instagram, or just tedtalkstoomuch.com. If I haven't talked enough today, that's where you can find me. Awesome. 
Well, again, Ted Moss, thank you so much for joining. And we'll have links for all of those different places for people to find you in the show notes. Um, so they'll be able to, to click there. And if anyone has any, you know, wants to get a hold of Ted or anything, you can certainly email me and I can put you in contact. But uh, Oh, you can email me at tedtalkstoomuch at yahoo.com. Coincidentally, hey, Walker, thanks for having me. You know what? It was a pleasure meeting you at PodFest. And I'm so glad to be invited on. And I'm so glad that you weren't offended by me being me. No, like I said, man, I, I really, um, and I, I again, I don't mean it as a flattery thing. I really earnestly mean Oh, no, flatter me, dude. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I really do think that these kinds of conversations are, are important. Um, and I do think it's, it's awesome to hear someone who does have a different point of view than I do, but that is and is willing to actually engage with that and express it and, and frankly be vulnerable to you know to just sharing what you actually think about something so yeah well, can't really... wait to get the hate mail this is gonna be great dude <laughs> so glad i did this <laughs> no i'm good my definitely the listeners are going to be coming out in droves i, I know <laughs> <laughs> Right, folks well that is going to do it for the show today thank you again so much to ted moss of ted talks too much podcast uh, for coming on the show and, and sharing your stories and your thoughts um, thank you also again to misha for providing the music for today's show and as always thank you listener for listening uh, i will also invite you to check out my other podcast pick up your sticks which is co-hosted by myself and brett lindley Pick Up Your Sticks is a podcast about video games where we talk about why gaming matters. So while we certainly cover news and reviews and current events in gaming, we really try and emphasize our emotional connections to gaming and think about on a more deep level why gaming really does matter. Um, if you enjoy video games and you enjoy long-form discussions, I think you will absolutely love Pick Up Your Sticks. Pick Up Your Sticks can be found anywhere podcasts are listened to, so wherever you're checking out The Walk Show, you can check out Pick Up Your Sticks. As always, thanks again for listening. Hope you have a great week. Stay up. Stay up.